0: So I'm in Russia for the first time since February of last year, and so I'm going to do something a little bit different this podcast, with a series of, shall we say, sound postcards from Moscow. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash Shadows. But now, on with today's programme. I only arrived a couple of days ago, so I'm not going to be able to pretend to provide any kind of serious, coherent and well-judged assessment of what's going on on the ground. Still, I am looking forward to, over the next few weeks, having a poke around and obviously sharing that through the podcast. But, as I said, for this time, what I'm going to do is just bring together a collection of thoughts, generally recorded around the city... And let me note, do not, do not, do not expect anything like decent sound quality, because a lot of this was just simply recorded on my phone. In a few cases, I actually had to record backdrop and then re-record my own words over it, because the sound quality was just too bad. But anyway, I hope it just gives some sense of, you know, my, my first impressions being here. It's tremendously exciting, I must say, not just because, obviously, from my professional point of view... To be able to sniff the air, feel the earth, and have the kind of conversations that you can't necessarily have over Zoom is tremendously important. But also just because, hey, I enjoy being in Moscow. It's a tremendously fun and vibrant city, and therefore there's always something new to learn. So, just say, sit back and allow me to show you around in a way. There does seem something very fitting about walking into Red Square, past the speakers that are blaring out orthodox service and right. Because after all, Red Square is a bit of everything. It's a bit of religion, it's a bit of power, it's a bit of tourism, and it's still always pretty damn impressive. Still, before anything else, I need to go and get registered. And that means a bit of travel. And it's interesting, taking the metro, it's really quite striking that you know, there clearly is a real effort to try and make people observe basic COVID uh, precautions. Signs saying be masked and police officers barking at people to put their masks on if they're not. Dispensers for um, antiviral creams. And yet there's maybe, I don't know, 50% masks looking around. Now, admittedly, that's probably much the same as you'd see in the London Underground, but of course that's in a country with much, much higher levels of vaccination. And it's really quite striking the extent to which there is this strong tr- trend towards vaccine suspicion, with only about 30-odd percent of, of Russians overall having taken the vaccines, even though in Sputnik the Russians have a perfectly good vaccine. And yet it's not that they just simply don't think that there is indeed a thing called COVID. No, not at all. If you go to the chemists, you will see all kinds of different remedies. I mean, some, I suspect, quackery. But, you know, primarily sensible ways of trying to moderate the risk. Um, You know, saline and um, antiviral sprays to put up your nose or things with which to gargle and such like. So it's this interesting conundrum. On the one hand, you know, there are people who clearly want to protect themselves. And there is now, I would say, a sort of fairly reasonable regime of you know trying to require masks anytime you're in uh, an office or a shop or public transport or the like but 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 people not really interested in doing so which you know is in some ways fair enough masks are irritating and annoying things and yet the state is finding itself in this rather problematic position that on the one hand It clearly does want to address this problem. People are dying and there is a cost to the economy, there is a cost to the health system and such like. But on the other hand, there is a reluctance to move beyond exhortations, which are everywhere, incidentally, and instead to move into trying to make things obligatory, in other words, vaccinations. And I suspect that to a considerable extent, this is precisely because from the government's point of view, Everything is about 2024. Everything is about avoiding irritants with the public that really can't be sort of turned around. You know, there, is, there was, I think, probably quite a shock with the state Duma elections. So the question becomes, what to do about it? Well, the truth of the matter is, in some ways, they've adopted what I had you know, a, a local put it to me was, in some ways, a kind of a libertarian option. Look, we've done what we can to try and get you to be vaccinated and so forth. If you are still going to basically take the risk, well, that's on you. Why should we crash our economy just because you're stupid? And, you know, I, th- I think there is, there is some truth in that particular pers- perspective. Yes, of course, the Russian government does not want to go into lockdown. It's unpopular, it's expensive and so forth. But there is also this sense of, look, we told you what, what the problem was. Now it's your responsibility. And you can see that much, much more broadly, even in, for example, what you might think of as the, the, the health and safety culture. Um, I later on walked past, for example, a wall that was clearly bowing out, and there was a whole series of metal struts, kind of like sort of jerry rig looking, holding it up, and signs saying, you know, possibly a zone, a danger zone. But on the other hand, there was nothing physically to stop a passerby going in and you know squatting in the shadow of the wall at risk if they wanted to. There is still a greater willingness to, shall we say, embrace the possibility of risk. Whereas in the West, we are very, very risk averse, maybe because we're living in litigious times. But one way or the other, it's not just that we say, do not do this. We will do everything we can to ensure that people cannot, whether it's with High visibility tape, whether it's with barriers and the like. So there is an interesting sign. It's not just about high politics. It's not just about economics. It is also, I think, something to more uh, cultural and psychological about the extent to which, yes, if you really want to take a chance, ah, be the state's guest. Anyway, I'm now walking down to the multifunctional um, Centre, the multifunctional centre known as Moi Documenti. I don't think I'll be able to record inside so I will probably stop and then uh, re-record afterwards my actual sort of observations about going through the process of residence registration. Real pain in the backside. But on the other hand, as pain in the backsides go... It's never quite as annoying as you'd think. This is an interesting thing, and again, I think it does say something about Russia, that they have, on the one hand, this really, really, in my opinion, foolish and unnecessarily bureaucratic process, whereby anyone who who comes to visit or whatever, unless you're, I think, for two days, maybe? Anyway, you have to be officially registered. Now, if you're going to stay at a hotel, that's no problem, really, because the hotel will handle it. If you're not... That does become a problem because what you have to do is end up schlepping down to present all kinds of documents. You know, every single uh, photocopy of every single page in my passport, which has anything written on or stamped in it. My um, little migration form that I got when I entered the country. But also, you know, the person I'm staying with, they have to demonstrate that they actually do own the property. They have to show their identity documents and such like lengthy process which involves checking it out stamping it and so forth and then you get a little little, scrappy little piece of paper proving that you have been registered. The thing is though these multifunctional centres are really quite a a fascinating development. Certainly they're in Moscow I I, I don't know if, if they're broader than that and what they do is they bring together a whole variety of different government agencies. So, if you want to to register residence, but also if you need to get a new passport or renew your driving license or all kinds of other things, the relevant people are here, and so you you come in, you you explain what you're there for, they'll they'll give you a little uh, talon, a little sort of number ticket, uh, and you wait. And in my experience, I, mean, I didn't have to wait more than sort of I, I don't think I ever had to wait more than like 15, 20 minutes, and then in due course so you, you you go and speak to a specialist. And, you know, typically speaking, they are, you know, in a very Russian sense, they're, they're not exactly sort of chatty and chirpy, but they are polite, they are extremely efficient, they're perfectly cordial, and they get the job done with minimum fuss, and also, you know, actually willing to help you out if you're not quite sure which bit of which arcane form you're meant to have filled in, and, and the like. Again, this fascinating sort of conundrum. They've got this again, while I'm focusing on on the residence registration, they've got this pretty stupid law, which I don't really think adds to the security or general good of the the Russian commonweal. But nonetheless, it's there, and they're going to continue to enforce it. So what they do is, instead of actually removing the law, they just simply create a structure, which means that if you're going to have an irksome law, at least it can be as unirksome as possible. It's a sort of fascinating way around it, um, you know, when, when there is a reluctance to take away what are, let's be perfectly honest, population control measures. But on the other hand, you want to try and make it as, as easy as possible. And you can see the same sort of process at work with the Gosu um app uh, and, and website, um, in, with, with the um, Moscow City app and so forth. That's, you know, w- what is still often a fairly bureaucratic country can actually move really quite smoothly and neatly because they have essentially sort of found ways around it sometimes technological, sometimes human and I still wonder again that the mentality that means you, you keep silly laws but at least you try and make your way around it so there's something I haven't quite put my finger on exactly what it is but it just feels very very Russian to me anyway, that's done now even though it means I will have to carry my passport at all times. But now it's a chance to go sightseeing, and best of all, book shopping. (laughs) Moscow does, after all, have a very good, very impressive book. I'm doing my usual troll through my favorite bookshops and this is my second favorite, sorry about that, Dom Domknygi Moscow House of Books and probably my favorite is Biblioglobus. One of the things that always fascinates me is the extent to which, in turn, Russians are still absolutely fascinated by intelligence espionage, counter espionage. And in this case, I mean, the array of books is really quite extraordinary. Roughly speaking, there is what, about 16 meters of shelf space in what is admittedly a big bookshop. But nonetheless, 16 meters of shelf space on espionage books. And you know, these, these are often really quite detailed in how they look at... in Oh, actually, my apologies, I just missed another bumper. So I would say there's another... Oh, four and a half metres of shelf space. Anyway, one way or the other, these are often going into real detail, and they're actually often quite fascinating, as well as others being, as you'd expect, barking mad in their assumptions. Though, in fairness, there is a lot of barking mad literature in, in the West as well about, you know, espionage, and particularly those dastardly Russians. So, you know, in terms of the, the nature, yes, there is a perhaps a, a slightly more nationalist, and again, the classic beleaguered fortress uh, mentality that you find within the literature. But I would say it's not actually that extreme. It's just the scale. Can you imagine going into many Western bookshops, you know, big bookshops, and finding actually sections called uh, special services, you know, intelligence agencies? Not really, but still, for someone like me, This is really rather cool. Well here I am now in Globus, and the sad truth of the matter is that I spoke too soon. Globus has been through a distinct uh, remont, uh, remodeling, and look, it's still a really first-rate bookshop. But certainly from the point of view of the of, uh, the kind of books, the kind of collections that I look for, it's not looking quite so impressive. Now, really, it and Moskovsky Domkinigi, I would say, are pretty much level pegging. And in particular, it's interesting because for a bookshop that is you know, quite literally in the shadow of the Lubyanka building, the notorious KGB and now FSB headquarters building, its, it's espionage uh, collection, while still healthy, is, if anything, as I said, pipped by MDKs. The next bit, by the way, I re-recorded because of a very loud conversation that ended up occupying, dominating the soundtrack. More broadly, looking at the history books, what's interesting is, again, I think there seems to be a, something of a new evolution in the Soviet history analyses. In the past, a lot of it was, after all, very much about, you know, these days, why Lenin was wrong or why Stalin, Stalin was a sort of a great father of the nation or whatever. We're seeing a lot more granular social history, actually, one, one would say. A lot more, I think, a sort of attention to, shall I say, the Soviet era as an era of humanity rather than an era of power politics and conspirology, which, again, is, is healthy. And it's part of the slow growing out of, again, to use the same metaphor, the shadow of the Soviet Union. People feel less scarred about it, less needing to essentially define it in terms that explain or justify or, by contrast, exalt the present. And that's no bad thing, because in a way, one of the key problems we find at the very top of the system with Putin is a growing attempt to instrumentalize history. And if, and it's just a very, very small basis, but if actually the a selection of books that I have seen in these two very good bookshops, is anything to go by, If one actually looks at the academic context, it's going back to being, frankly, a normal period of intellectual uh, examination. That's a good thing. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. And before I return to my wanderings and ponderings from around Moscow, patrons are getting, while I'm going to be in Russia, which is the next four weeks, will be getting occasional, I'm calling letters from Moscow, again with further just general impressions and things that may not make it into the podcast. So if you're a patron and you haven't received your first one, do please check your spam filter, because I know a few ended up there. And of course, if you're not a patron, shameful, shameful that you take fullest advantage of me, why not actually become one? It's cheap, or it can be cheap, and you get all kind of benefits like my letter. Here I am, just off the very, very busy Novinsky Boulevard, having just been to the Armia RC or Army of Russia shop, which is coincidentally almost directly opposite from the American Embassy, which I'm sure is entirely coincidental. I always like to go and have a look because this is a rather weird place. It's a kind of official merch, even if they don't admit it, of, of the Russian military. Um, and it's not like army surplus stuff or camouflage uniforms or anything like that. It's, it's actually aiming to be stylish and tasteful. And to an extent, it is. To me, that's actually a downside. I think either you, you go all out in terms of tacky propagandism, or else you just don't bother and just do nice clothing. I noticed this time a definite uh, addition to the range is there was a particular kind of fur parka, kind of very pale, pale tan fur parka that Putin had a, a photo op um, in, and um, they actually sell it and they explicitly sell it more or less as the you too can wear Putin's parka. Then there's also a, a denim jacket with uh, Team Putin on the breast. I mean, okay, that, that really is very, very tacky. But most of the rest of the stuff isn't quite at the same level. But it was interesting, just a couple of observations. One is that they, they continue to try and push the cult of the so-called polite people, what in the West are more likely known as the Little Green Men, in other words, the people who took over Crimea with a little range of plastic figures and so forth. But more broadly, we also see Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister, appearing now much more in terms of you know pictures of him around and such like which, again, may seem obvious, but certainly in the past, and I, I haven't been in Moscow for, what, 20 months, um, but in the past was not actually evident. There's a slow, creeping and quite interesting rise of Shoigu's political profile. I think we're even seeing it in, in, in the merch in the uh, Army of, of Russia store. But as I say, as far as I'm concerned, it was rather disappointing. Given that I didn't quite have the suitcase capacity for a sort of, I don't know, 45 centimetre long toy tank, then on the whole I had to give the stuff a miss. So I'm out walking in the eastern Moscow, I suppose it will be suburban, though in a suburban region of Bazmany. Pretty early on Sunday morning. Not much traffic, not many people around but it's a gorgeous blue sky so I wanted to take fullest advantage of it and one of the things that strikes me just wandering around Moscow is actually the continued level of construction that's going on I'm actually just walking past one particular large uh, apartment building that is currently going through that and you know in part this is from the so-called Capitania Remont, which is carried out by the city authorities because of the and I want to slightly caricature it here but in some ways the the rather well, sort of peculiar system of ownership whereby the city authorities own the land and the actual structures on it. Again, I'm caricaturing. Whereas individuals own their own flats so that you have this sort of, as like I said, it's quite sort of strange dual power, if I can use a, a term from Russian history, whereby, you know, let's say if you're If your own plumbing goes, that's on you. But if it's to do with the pipes that are part of the fabric of the house, then it's the council's job. Anyway, what's currently going through is this major process, has been for years, whereby Moscow city authorities are going through looking at apartment buildings. Some they are deeming um, to be beyond economic repair, and therefore they are basically being knocked down and the people who have their flats there essentially are subject to compulsory um, purchase orders and are given new flats. Though you know, the idea is that they're meant to be comparable, though in many cases people don't feel as happy with perhaps the location and so forth. And let's be honest, there is considerable suspicion that this is in part a money-making venture, whereby particularly sort of prime land with not-so-prime property on it can then actually be turned into prime land with prime property on it. But then there's also a huge amount of private construction going on as well, including, I noticed, and just notice it from a distance, a couple of new towers going up in the Moscow City area, which is this very uh, glossy, very outré architecture in some cases, Um, high-rise offices and, and some flat centre. Where it was meant to be the sort of going to be the new financial heart of Moscow. Then, of course, the economy went in different directions, and I had thought that actually there was a lot of under occupancy there. There may still be, but whatever the reason, it looks like there's a couple of big tower blocks still going up there. But as I said, more generally, there is a lot of construction going on. And in part, look, this is the, the Moscow factor, which even more than most capital cities, though I think probably London rivals it, is something of a vampiric force, sucking up all the various uh, opportunities, the money, the smart people who want to go somewhere and so forth, so that they all come to Moscow, and Moscow therefore thrives at, unfortunately, the expense of much of the rest of the country. But it's also, I think, an interesting, gauge of continued, well, I'm not sure if confidence is quite the right word. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks that suddenly the economy is going to start booming. But there is a sense that in some ways they've adapted to the current environment, a fairly stagnant economy, but nonetheless one in which, if you're smart or lucky, you're in the right sector, or, let's be perfectly honest, connected to the right people... You can still make quite considerable sums of money, and therefore it is still worth speculating to accumulate. Some of these might actually be essentially vessels for money laundering, embezzlement, and so forth, but you know, only a few. That does not explain the continued, quite, quite substantial um, amount of construction going on in Moscow. Which of course also means that there is a continued demand for migrant labourers, only particularly Central Asian people who actually scurry around and doing so much of the hard work. And I noticed, in fact, quite recently there was a, an amnesty for, from memory, 180-odd thousand um, people who had been told that they had to leave Russia, never to return because of um, visa or work permit irregularities. They're now being told, well, you can come back if you want. There is definitely a hunger for labour. Obviously... Cheap, hard working labour, and that in itself says something about the interestingly paradoxical nature of the economy. So, yes, on the one hand, no one pretends that Russia is not going through fairly tough times and is likely to continue to do so. But I'll say, it's not necessarily a, a situation of, of total d- doom and despondency, at least as perceived from a thoroughly unexpert quick glance at what I see around me on the streets of Moscow. So take that with all the various cautions that one would expect and one should apply. By the way, a little PS that I neglected to include, this Kapitalny Romont. It's not always that they will try and knock down or steal your apartment building. The upside is that if it's deemed essentially sound, you'll also get a full, pretty full-scale uh, remodelling and general sort of repair of the roof and the plumbing and all the other gubbins of the place. So, you know, it is actually a pretty dramatic upscaling of the quality of the residential accommodation in Moscow. So I, do, I don't make it sound as if it's too much of a cynical venture. So I'm walking down a street with the distinctly picturesque name of Matroska Tishina, Sailor's Rest or Sailor's Silence. Unfortunately, it's rather better known for the distinctly unpicturesque, the great big ugly bulk of FKU Sledzjennie Izoljatord number one. In other words, Investigative Isolation Unit number one, a rather notorious interrogation prison um, that. Has cropped up through history, unfortunately, never in a good way. It's interesting actually, because it goes this great big, ugly, slightly crumbling hulk with right at the top a couple of the tops of what are clearly enclosed um, exercise yards, and it's sitting right in the middle of a residential neighborhood. And it's always a bit weird, I mean, actually, which is not unusual. I mean, I'm thinking of Butyrka, another Russian prison that again sits in the middle of apartment blocks, and you think, wow. I'm not so sure that I would want that to be the view out of my window. Anyway, the reason I particularly mention this is because, at the moment, clearly big concern of the, not just Moscow, but Russian uh, sort of liberal intellectuals, is a case relating to the Shaninka, um, a particularly progressive university whose rector has just been arrested and charged is part of a long-running and increasingly unfolding fraud case, which is generally presumed to be more likely to be about politics than it is to be about actual embezzlement. Now, the case, well, we'll have to see how it evolves. I'm, I'm going to cover it more properly once I've had a chance to really sort of dig in. Um, but the case is one in which... It could be worse, I mean, that the rector in question has just been given house arrest instead of anything like, say, going to Matroska um, at Tishina. But on the other hand, it's interesting because, again, just, just from the conversations I've had so far, it stresses a point that from the outside there seems to be this kind of great concern about, um, generally speaking, the kind of crackdown that the is carrying out. And, you know, that in not, should not in any way be... Um, Underrated. On the other hand, I mean, first of all, the, the numbers involved are relatively few. And secondly, there is still a, a bit of a logic to it, even if it's not necessarily immediately evident. I mean, if one takes the, the Zoya case, for example, you know, it, it seems to be about getting caught in the fallout of this sort of larger um, fraud case, but also to do with politics in that Shaninka is quite closely linked to Kilienka, deputy head of the presidential administration and kind of political technologist in chief. And there are clearly all kinds of the usual sort of vicious and cannibalistic Kremlin politics around. So on the one hand, look, it's very scary because as I say, the logics are visible after the event and above all, they are multiple. It's not like you do this and bad things will happen. It is a whole variety of things that maybe, if you do, bad things might happen. And it's very hard to navigate that. On the other hand, the focus on this particular case does emphasise something. And that is that although, yes, there's going to be talk about, oh, my God, we're going back to 1937, we're going back to Stalinism, which is actually a a deeply foolish and problematic parallel to draw. But on the other hand, actually, if anything, I'm struck with actually how well people seem to be navigating this new environment. How well they are coping with the idea of, yes, there are new, evolving and not always clear sets of rules. But nonetheless, we will work our way through them. The Zeev case was precisely because it seemed to be a breach of the rules. But as I said, I I think it probably isn't about political repression, even though Shaninka, as I said, is extremely liberal and seen almost as one of the kind of cradles of liberal thought in in Moscow, liberal of intellectual thought. Um, And yet, you know, it's probably not not, not to do with that, but just simply to do with being caught in the crossfire of of larger feuds. So again, when it comes down to it, Russians are good at knowing how to adapt. Um, The distinctive sonic profile of a Sunday morning in a Russian city, particularly Moscow, where certainly over the last 20, 30 years, the number of churches which have either been obviously renovated, but also just simply cropped up, popped up from nowhere out of whole cloth, is really quite striking. And it is definitely part, as I say, of the, the sonic geography of Russian cities these days. And it's interesting because although the Russian Orthodox Church clearly is closely, incestuously connected to the state and to a considerable extent survives precisely because of the extensive perks it gets from the state in return for its loyalty especially tax breaks nonetheless the fact that there are all these churches does suggest that there is a constituency there is a desire for that and that it's one that I was going to say survived the Soviet era I'm I can't help but wonder, though, if if that's perhaps an incorrect way of thinking about it. But instead of thinking this as something, a sort of deep racial memory that somehow was not able to be suppressed entirely, how far is it actually that, in some ways, it met the same needs as Marxism-Leninism, Marxism-Leninism that became, in many ways, fossilized as a kind of secular faith, with its own pantheon of saints one of whom after all was suitably in tuned for all of the faithful to come and see and you know once that particular faith fell away once that particular set of dogmas was revealed to be empty something else had to sort of fill the place and in that respect in some ways i think it's a damn good thing that there's russian orthodoxy i have my certain problems with aspects of of the faith from time to time. But nonetheless, it is essentially a relatively benign way for all these kind of untethered, unmoored passions and desires for something numinous, something bigger than themselves, to, to be sort of absorbed by it. I mean, you know, things could have gone so many different ways. We could have had some kind of unpleasant secular nationalism of the sort that would make what Putin spouts look positively mundane and benign. You know, all kinds of different things could have emerged. So in this respect, I mean, it's not just that it's a particularly uh, striking and I think really rather charming um, sort of backdrop to wandering wanderings around the city. It is actually also a sign of I would say health, more than anything else. But anyway, time to return to my wonders. Now, be warned, and I hope you spot that clever little play on words with the siren. Be warned that this was recorded on the hoof, and thus, not only, as I say, of... Distinctly iffy sound quality at times, but also I may well have got details wrong. I may well have misspoken. I know I use the word fascinating way too often. You'll just have to bear with me. Normal service will be resumed shortly, but I just thought really in some ways I wanted to convey not just the first few senses of being in Moscow, but also some senses of the excitement and the and the variety, particularly for those of you who listen. But who don't travel much here or indeed haven't been here at all. Thank you very much, as ever, for listening, and soon there'll be more, rather more coherent thinking from Moscow Shadows. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or Facebook mark Galliotti on russia this podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons and you too can be one just go along to my patreon page that's patreon.com slash in moscow shadows and decide which tier you want to join getting access to exclusive materials and other perks however whether or not you contribute thank you very much indeed for listening until next time keep well И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ правый.